the Stockholms for doing our first Advent reading. Boys, I was hoping y'all were going to play with fire, but mom did it for you. Sorry. Church family, I hope you have had a fantastic Thanksgiving week. I know we have some that are traveling and joining us online. Some of you have family still with you. You had family here, or maybe you came back into town yesterday. Uh, however you spent your Thanksgiving, I hope it was good. I, just a personal note, uh, because so many of you have asked and reached out to us. If you were here last Sunday evening for our Thanksgiving service and annual members meeting, uh, you know that uh, I was absent from that because when we got home from church on Sunday, my wife fell and broke her shoulder in several places. And so we spent much of Thanksgiving week uh, in and out of the hospital and uh, surgeries a couple of times trying to get surgery done uh, this last week. Thank you for the concern that you show, have shown my family. Thank you for your prayer. So many of you have reached out to us or even just asking uh, this morning. I would appreciate you continuing to pray for Christy. It will be a little bit of a recovery. She is uh, hurting pretty bad as you can imagine. You break your shoulder, it's going to hurt. Um, and uh, she is uh, a very active person, and this is going to have to slow her down. And so if you would keep praying for her. So many of you have asked, so let me just answer. Um, it, there really isn't anything you can do for us. We, we're okay. We've got some family that, are, that are, have come to help out. We have more family that's going to come around Christmas time. Um, and I don't think we say this enough from those of us who are employed here. You take care of us by providing things like medical insurance. Uh, so that when something like this happens, we don't have to worry about how we're going to pay for it. So you have already, as the congregation, helped us uh, in ways that you uh, maybe don't even really think about that you, uh, that you did. So thank you for that. I'll invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word now to Mark chapter 8. We are going to finish this chapter uh, this morning, picking up in verse 27. And I'll invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word together. Mark writes for us, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to not, strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray together. Father, again, we gather together with thanksgiving in our hearts, not only for the 
abundance with which you have blessed us, but for the hope that you have given to us. For whether we are experienced times of abundance and happiness, or we are in the valleys of life with difficulty and lacking, we, your people, always have hope. We thank you for this hope. And we thank you, God, that it is through Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the one who calls us to follow him, forsaking all, that we find that hope. Thank you that he will one day return. I pray that we will be found faithful. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Maybe seated. This morning's sermon is entitled Following Jesus because that really is the simple subject that we find here in the end of Mark chapter 8. Occasionally, a sermon is going to seem, particularly for those of you that come week in and week out, very basic. And this is one of those, and because it really truly is. And often we run the risk when we come into a, a, a time of, in God's word and we approach a text that we maybe have heard before. If you've been coming to the church for, um, well, back to when I was preaching through the gospel of Luke several years ago, uh, I preached a very similar sermon, actually a couple of sermons on uh, Luke's recording of these same passages. And we run the risk sometimes when, when we're kind of in a moment like this to kind of turn off. We say, I know this. I, I know this. I, I, I know uh, the confession of faith that Peter makes. I, I, I understand the, the call that, that Jesus is going to give for the disciples to follow him. Uh, so maybe I can think about other things. Maybe, you know, the turkey is still lasting and I can rest a little bit. But I would encourage you that it's important for us to understand this morning that it is oftentimes the basic things of Christianity that, that are most attacked by the enemy. And we see an enemy's attack even through Peter here in the middle section of this passage. And so we must be on our guard this morning to recognize that that which is most foundational to us in the Christian faith bears repeating. It's why we come every Sunday morning to be reminded of the truth of the gospel and the call to follow Jesus on his terms. That's the main idea of our sermon today, that following Jesus happens on his terms, not ours. And this is the challenge for us because we are, by our nature, our sin nature, this demand for independence, this constant draw to idolize our own will and our own way and our own understanding and our own way of thinking over that which God has said as true. And by the way, you have that same draw in you just as I have it in mine to idolize myself and take God off of his throne and to place my will and my way above his that draw, that pull towards sin 
so often leads us to seek to redefine what it means to follow Jesus. This isn't new for the world. It's been happening really since the beginning, but we see it happening in our day as people make demands of Christians and as Christians uh, give in to these cultural demands and begin to redefine what it really means to follow Jesus and redefine what Jesus said to be true and who Jesus is and what it means for us to even be a Christian. And here's going to be my very basic argument this morning. For someone to be a Christian, is to follow Jesus. But we can only follow Jesus in the way that he has said to follow him. We don't get to dictate the terms as much as our flesh wants to. So today really is about fighting against our own sin nature and saying, Jesus, forsaking all, I will follow you. So we'll see this in three parts as we see three conversations happen here in Mark chapter 8. The first, following Jesus begins with a credible confession of faith. Look in verses 27 through 30. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? So we've left off with Jesus in the northern region of the Sea of Galilee, um, and he is now going to take what amounts to about a 25-mile journey, maybe a day's walk, uh, up to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is at the, is at the far, far reaches of northern Israel, is at the base of Mount uh, Hermon, it, is known, was known in Jesus' day and was known for millennia prior to that as being a central place of pagan worship. I've been able to visit Caesarea Philippi on two occasions to be able to go to the place where pagans had drawn for hundreds and hundreds of years uh, to worship false idols cut into the stone. To see the place, there's a cave, it's the headwaters of the Jordan River, um, where they believe to be the entrance, the gates of hell itself. In Jesus' day, a temple to the false god Pan had been erected there, and people would come and, and worship that false god. They would do unspeakable things in requesting his return to that temple. And it is surrounded by this this these false gods. It's in that, it's in that uh, region. It's, it's, it's important that Jesus is going to this place because it's in this place that people have answered the question wrong for thousands of years that Jesus is going to ask the central question of the gospel of Mark. He really asks it in two parts. First, setting them up. Who do the people say that I am? Look at verse the end, of that, the end of verse 27, who the people say that I am? And then they answer, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. Meaning people have developed their own opinions of who Jesus is. People have given in to their fleshly temptation to ascribe to Jesus truth that is not true. That they want to define him on their own terms. And so some who liked John see him as John. 
Some who liked Elijah see as, as Elijah. And then we get this all-encompassing statement at the end of verse 28. Others, just one of the other prophets that people have really tried to define Jesus on their own terms. And then Jesus asks the second part of the question. Really, it was just a setup. And now the question that he's driving to, but who do you say that I am? Because the people clearly don't know. John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the other prophets. But Jesus is concerned with these 12 men who have been with him during his Galilean ministry. These that he has spoken with not only publicly in parables, but privately in explanation. They should, at this point in the Gospel of Mark, know how to answer this question. The Gospel of Mark, easily divided into two sections. The first eight chapters or up to this point, seven and a half chapters, telling us clearly who Jesus is. Mark begins by telling us that it is in, in the, at the very first line of his gospel, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Mark has made no secret at all about who Jesus is for these first seven and a half chapters. And now we get to really the, the pendulum. We get to that central moment of, okay, do you actually know? You go back to last week that, that Mark records these repeated signs for us, right? The feeding of the 4,000, the confrontation with the Pharisees, the, the discussions about bread, all of these things screaming to us of who Jesus is. Now the question, who do you, my disciples, say that I am? And Peter who most often speaks for the disciples, speaks up. And he simply says, you are the Christ. The people clearly don't know yet who Jesus is, but Peter does. You are the Christ. Now, what is this confession of faith? Peter's confession of faith is that Jesus is the Messiah. The word Christ is a transliterated word from the Greek meaning Messiah. So the Old Testament word is Messiah. The New Testament word is Christ because one was written in Hebrew, the other was written in Greek, but they're the same thing. This is the anointed one of God, the one that God had promised to send, the hope that had been promised to God's people. Jesus is who Mark has been telling us he is from the beginning of his gospel account. And make no mistake, to follow Jesus, it begins with this confession of faith. That Jesus is who the Bible says he is. That Jesus is who he said he is that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. It is only through recognizing that Jesus, the Son of God, has come to do what he was sent to do that we find salvation. We can't follow Jesus on any other terms. There is no other starting place. Have you ever put together Ikea furniture? You want a confession? I actually enjoy it a little bit. I do. 
I, I kind of like step-by-step processes. I'm not afraid of reading instructions. I know a lot of men are, but I'm not afraid of reading instructions. I kind of like instructions. I take it kind of as a challenge. I want to see how fast I can do it, right? But if you start on step five and don't do some of those very basic things that are on the first couple of, you just think you know what the first three or four instructions are going to be, you're going to end up, particularly with Ikea furniture, with like a cabinet instead of a chair, right? Because you just... Didn't do it right. And, and to follow Jesus is the same. We, we had to start on step one. And here is step one. Step one is a credible confession of faith. That's step one. We've bought new ones, by the way. Hold on. Let's try again. There we go. So we knew what to do. We bought a new one. We figured out what was broke. So there we are. I'm going to stand still, though, Paul. Here we go. So it begins with step one, right? Credible testimony of faith. There is no other option. We don't get to just say, well, I like some of the teachings of Jesus, so I'm going to follow these teachings. I think Jesus is John the Baptist. I think Jesus is Elijah. I think Jesus is a good rabbi. I think Jesus is a good teacher. I think Jesus was a wise man. I think Jesus was revolutionary. All of these things we hear people say in our day, people have said throughout the ages, but there is only one step that begins our path of following Jesus. And it is when we say, you are my Lord and Savior. It's why when we baptize people, as we got to see today, it was fortuitous that we got to see a baptism today. Right before we enter the water, I've already prepped them, but right before we enter the water, every person that I baptize, I remind them of this. I'm going to ask you, what is your profession of faith? And you are going to say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Because this is where it begins. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew records more to this conversation. This doesn't make Matthew right and Mark wrong. They're both right. One just records, one condenses the conversation, one expands further for us. Listen to what Jesus, how Jesus affirms Peter's confession of faith in Matthew 16. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. So standing at the pagan gates of hell, Jesus says, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then just as he does at the end of the section in Mark, he does at the end of the section in Matthew, he strictly charges them to tell no one about who he is or in Matthew that he is the Christ. You say, why go and look at the expansion of what Matthew records? Because we have so individualized Christian faith, we've even individualized step one of it. And it is an individual confession. Make no mistake, no one can make that confession for you. Your mama can't make it for you, your grandmother can't make it for you. You may be here today because you're visiting family on Thanksgiving and you're relying on someone else's faith and someone else's belief in Jesus to kind of pass down to you. It doesn't work like that. There is an individual component, but there is also a corporate component. 
When Jesus says that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church and he gives the church the keys to the kingdom, what Jesus is saying is that the local church is the ones who get to determine if a profession of faith is credible. And again, it was fortuitous that we baptized this morning because this is a great illustration. I didn't plan it. We just did it. When somebody wants to be baptized, we kind of go through the steps and we schedule it and we schedule it, but here it is. You may not realize this, but what we did when we baptized Mark, Mark's a friend of mine. He goes to our small group. I've gotten to know him him and his family really well. Look forward to presenting them for membership in our church uh, at the end of the service. And here's what we do. When we baptize somebody, it's not just me. It's us. It's Nanzuin River Baptist Church saying, yes, your testimony is credible. It's why we play a testimony video. Because there's too many of you to all have to sit down with somebody like Mark and hear his testimony. So whether you realize it or not, this is what we're doing. We are exercising the keys to the kingdom when we say, yes, you have believed in Jesus unto salvation. So there's both an individual and a corporate component of this. That together, generation after generation, gatherings of Christians have looked at new people who are making the confession of Peter and saying, you now are one of us. That is step one. Number two, following Jesus should change our perspective. Did it here? Oh, it got here. We just didn't install it. Let's see, there we go. Following Jesus should change our perspective. This is the second part. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The beginning of verse 32 is important to us. And he said this plainly, and I'm gonna explain it to you in a minute. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. So in this second section here, in in this this group of three uh, events that we're looking at in the life of Jesus, immediately, because this is the way that Mark kind of records things, if you've been with us through these eight chapters, you know, like Mark just records things short and to the point and then moves on to the very next thing, making these connections. And the word and at the beginning of this makes this connection. So we're supposed to view this as, as even, even if it happened immediately after it or not, we're supposed to, in Mark's Uh, theology of what he's trying to tell us about Jesus, we're supposed to connect the two together, right? So Peter has made the confession of faith that has stood now for 2,000 years is the confession of faith of entering the kingdom of heaven, that you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. And now in the very next section, Jesus is going to call him Satan. So Jesus, let's see why Peter confronts Jesus. He begins to teach them. And tell them what's going to happen. He says, the man, son of man must suffer and be rejected. And the elders, the chief priests and the scribes. So, and he must be killed and, and buried. And he will rise again on the third day. And we're told at the beginning of verse 32 that he tells us to them plainly. This is the only time in the gospel of Mark that that word is used. It's actually the only time in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark and Luke, that share source material. It's the only time this word shows up. 
Let's think about why that's important. Because up until this point, Jesus has been teaching in parables. Jesus has been teaching in signs and wonders. There's things Jesus has been doing to lead them to this point, to lead them to the conclusion that he is the Christ. But now that we get to this central moment, you are the Christ in Mark's gospel. For the first time, Mark introduces the teaching of Jesus that he is not going to be the kind of Messiah that Israel expected, that he's going to be a different kind of Messiah. He's going to be one that's actually rejected by the elders, rejected by the priests, rejected by the scribes, and not only rejected, but killed and then resurrected. And he says this to them plainly, meaning Jesus didn't speak in parables here. He didn't speak in signs here. He just tells them. All right. You've made this credible profession of faith. Now I'm going to show you what I must do. And that's the division of Mark. Really the first half of Mark is about who Jesus is. The second half of Mark is about what Jesus must do and what we must do to follow him. That's how we divide Mark. And so this is how Mark begins this next part is by clearly explaining who Jesus is. And Peter, having made this profession of faith, is like, whoa, what? Because that's not what they were anticipating. Peter still kind of was thinking about the Messiah on his own terms. And Jesus, now being confronted by Peter, says to him, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. Following Jesus should change our perspective. Whatever we thought before, we made a credible profession of faith and began following Jesus, we must now ask, did I have it wrong? Was, I, was that idolatry? Was that me living for myself? Was that me living the way my culture and society demands? Or is that me really now following Jesus? Everything must now be run back through that filter. And even Peter, having made that public profession of faith, a real, credible profession of faith in Jesus as Savior, as the Messiah, the very next section still needs to recognize that his perspective must change, that Jesus has come to die, and the common perspective of the Messiah being one who would rid Israel of Rome and establish the physical throne of David in Jerusalem must be transformed in Peter's mind to realize who Jesus actually is and what it is that Jesus has actually come to do, and so do we. You see, following Jesus isn't just this one-time moment where we profess faith in Jesus. It's then this internal transformation that happens within us. The Apostle Paul describes it like this. He says, do not be conformed to the world in Romans 12, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Salvation leads to mind transformation, and this continues for a lifetime. Sanctification, this, the process of being made in the image of Christ, is a lifetime of putting off sin and putting on Jesus because our minds are continually transformed into what he has said is true. So you're not thinking the same as you used to think. 
And because you're not thinking the same as you used to think, you're not acting the same as you used to act because your mind is being transformed. Your perspective is being changed. And so there are moments in our own lives where the Holy Spirit does exactly what Jesus does to Peter, where he confronts us with our sin. He confronts us with our worldly perspective. He confronts us with our own flesh wanting to define Jesus and says, no, no, no. Change your mind. Church, we're never done changing our minds. We're never done putting off sin. Well, not as long as we still draw breath. As long as we still draw breath, we are still putting off sin and putting on Jesus. We are still rejecting the way of this world and transforming our minds. And how do we do this? Well, it's a work of the Holy Spirit that happens within you. And it happens as we submit ourselves to what God has said to be true. And the more we submit ourselves to what God has said to be true, we are exposed to his truth and transformed by it. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter four says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joint and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. It's like when we stand before the truth of God, it's as if we're naked. And it's it's like a, a, a sword sharper than anything we could ever imagine. And it cuts us clean. The more we're exposed to his truth, the more we're exposed to his word, the more we allow it to transform our minds, the more we become like him. And following Jesus demands of us that our perspective change changes from us being in control to him being in control. Number three, following Jesus demands self-sacrifice. Look at verse 34, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples. So now there's going to be this public call. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Verse 34 contains three very basic commands. The first, deny yourself. To deny oneself is to put oneself in their proper place. Again, our flesh wants to idolize our own will and our own way. Our flesh wants to say, I know best. But Jesus says, to follow me, you have to deny that draw. You have to deny that sin. You have to deny who your flesh says you are and recognize who Jesus is, the Christ who has come to die. So we deny ourselves. Number two, we take up your cross. That's the second of these commands in verse 34 about following Jesus. We, we take up our cross. Now, it is no mistake. Mark knows what he's doing. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, there's a theological argument that is being made here. He has outlined for us clearly the evidence that Jesus is the Christ. Peter makes this confession of faith, and then Jesus says, okay, then let me let you in plainly on what's going to happen. They're going to reject me. They're going to kill me. And how do they do it? They do it on a cross, the Roman torture device. It was, the cross was the, it wasn't the only way the Romans killed people, but it was the way Romans killed people when they wanted to tell the Roman society and remind the Roman society who was in charge. 
horrific execution. And Jesus says, I'm going to go to that kind of execution and then you must also take up your cross. Taking up your cross is not, you know, people use this, everybody's got their crosses to bear. Listen to me, be really careful when you use that. Our cross to bear isn't some sin that we're constantly struggling against. Our cross to bear isn't some mindset. Our cross to bear is following Jesus and what it actually costs us to follow Jesus. Take up your cross. Go to the cross with me. Die to yourself, Jesus says. And then the third command, follow me. We become followers only when we do the first two, when we deny ourselves and take up our crosses. Then we really know what it means to follow Jesus. As we make a profession of faith, we say, I believe in you. You are the Christ, the Christ on your terms, sent by God to accomplish salvation for your people. And now I'm going to follow you. This is why the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 2 that he's been crucified with Christ. That to take up your cross is to be crucified with him. To follow Jesus is to follow him even to death. And so he says, it is no longer I in Galatians 2.20 who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When we come to faith in Christ, we die to ourselves so that Christ might live through us. The call to every Christian is not to physically die on a cross, but the call to every Christian is to follow Jesus by dying to yourself so that Christ might live in and through you. Go back to our passage. Look at verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, to forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Forsaking all to follow Christ is the demand of the gospel. We live in a day, and it's not just today. This has kind of been a common occurrence in Western Christianity uh, since about the mid-20th century. And it's this call to what we would describe as cheap grace of easy believism that as long as somebody says some really what amounts to like some magic words, then they've put their faith in Jesus and it doesn't matter what they do, they're going to go to heaven when they die. And and listen, that is contrary to the call that Jesus gives here. Jesus isn't calling us to to give him lip service. Jesus is calling us to die and our very soul is on the line. Now make no mistake, salvation comes through faith alone. I am not adding works to salvation, but those who come to faith in Christ understand the gravity of the gospel and understand what it means to follow Jesus Go back to the profession of faith that we make in the, in the baptistry. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Hear me, there is no salvation without both of those things. Occasionally, I hear people talk about, well, Jesus became my Savior in 1983, but Jesus became my Lord in 1989. So, nope, Jesus became your Lord and Savior in 1989 because he can't be one and not the other. There's no category within scripture for that kind of easy grace, cheap grace, easy believism. We're like, oh yeah, I walked down an aisle and said a prayer, but it didn't really change my life or anything. No, when, when Jesus 
takes a hold of you and you make a real profession of faith in him and you begin to follow him with your whole life, that is when you are actually following Jesus as both your Lord and your Savior. And that is when we can agree with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because my soul is on the line. So to live in this life is to to live by following him and him living through me. Then notice what Jesus says in verse 38. Jesus isn't pulling punches here. He's already called Peter Satan in the previous passage. And and now Jesus with the crowd around him is saying, this is what it's going to cost you. Count the cost and understand following me is this lifelong call to forsake yourself to come after me, and he says, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in the adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes to the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And just make no mistake, Jesus considered his generation adulterous and sinful. And there is no generation that has followed that up until the current one that the scriptures would not describe as adulterous and sinful. So don't think about your generation as being the righteous generation of our time. It wasn't, I promise you. (laughs) And don't think about the new generation, these young people that are coming up as somehow the only ones in our land that are adulterous and sinful. All of our generations, going all the way back to Jesus' were adulterous and sinful. All of them. And he says, who is ashamed of me and of my words in the midst? The reason he calls them adulterous and sinful and the reason I want us to see that ours are too is because all of our generations are going to try to pull us away from following Christ, are going to try to seek to shame us into denying things that Jesus has said is true and denying the work that Jesus has accomplished for us. And we cannot be ashamed of Jesus. Many in this world have and currently do want us to embrace some version of Jesus that they deem acceptable. They look at certain parts, and different generations have done this differently, but they they look at parts of Jesus and are like, okay, you can embrace that part of him. You can follow this teaching of him, but you can't follow all of it. And Jesus says, no, anybody who doesn't embrace all of it didn't embrace any of it. We embrace all of who Jesus is or we embrace none of who he is because if he is the Christ, then all of him is worth following. And if you count your testimony of faith as credible, meaning you have the same testimony as Peter, unto salvation, following Jesus, then follow all of them. Don't make apologies for the parts that our world doesn't like. They didn't like it in his day. They're not going to like it in our day. And for however long we await for the return that he promises here in verse 38, they're going to continue to not like it. And so what do we do? We embrace all of who he is. So that when the Son of Man returns, that hope that we talked about when we lit our first advent candle this morning, that hope that we have in the return of the son, that he will find us to be faithful to all of who he is. So what? Have I followed Jesus 
on his terms alone. I told you that was the point, and it's the question. Maybe you've been coming for weeks and hearing sermons on who Jesus is from these first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark. Well, now is the moment for you to answer the question. Do I believe that? And am I willing to actually, if I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, am I willing to follow all of him? Not on my terms, not in the way that I define it, but in the way that he has said I must follow him. To close, I want to talk about something that Jesus says and does in John chapter 10. And in John chapter 10, Jesus is in Jerusalem, we're told in verse 22, at the time of the Feast of Dedication, which is in the winter. And we're coming into the winter, and we're actually coming up on the time of the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication is now called Hanukkah. It's the festival of lights for Jewish people, and they have celebrated the Feast of Dedication or the Festival of Lights uh, for 2,100 years now. Hanukkah is not, contrary to what some people kind of paint it as, as the Jewish version of Christmas. It just so happens to be around the same time of the year. Hanukkah changes its time. It's an eight-day celebration. I believe this year it begins on December the 18th. Hanukkah is not like an alternative version of Christmas. It also doesn't stand in contradiction to Christmas. Jesus was in Jerusalem because they were celebrating the Feast of Dedication. So let's talk about Hanukkah for a minute. What what is the Feast of Dedication? If you were here when I was preaching through Daniel, it was at a year, two years, I think it was a year ago, we were preaching through Daniel. We talked about a guy from... Um, the second century BC known as Antioch Epiphanes. Do you remember this guy? We talked about this. He was a really bad guy. Did some really bad things that Daniel foresaw in his visions from the Lord and that came true uh, a few hundred years after Daniel saw them. They happened in the land of Israel with a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes who desecrated the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem in, 164, in 167 and then in 164 BC, There was a revolt and they ran them out and they reestablished and rededicated the temple. And when they came into the temple, the story goes that they found one day of oil, olive oil, that was not desecrated. That was all that was left in the temple that had not been desecrated during that three, three and a half year period uh, was this one day's worth of oil. And so they lit the candle in the temple and that oil lasted not one day's but eight days. And that's the festival of dedication, Hanukkah, the festival of lights. And Jesus is in Jerusalem celebrating that which the Jewish people had celebrated for um, almost 200 years up until uh, his life. And it's with that backdrop that in John 10, we're told that Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ? And then they say, tell us plainly, which is that same word that Mark used to say that Jesus told his disciples plainly. And so now the crowd is saying, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The work that I do in my Father's name bears witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. 
and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So why did they ask him that question during Hanukkah? Because once again, occupiers were in the land of Israel, just like Antiochus Epiphanes. And once again, the people of Israel were looking for someone to run them out. Tell us, Jesus, speak plainly. No more riddles, no more parables, no more signs. Are you the Christ? And Jesus says, I've told you, and you've missed it. And he says, you've missed it because you can't hear. My sheep hear my voice. Jesus isn't who we make him to be. He's who he has always been and he is who the father sent him to be, the savior of his people. And here's my appeal to you today, my friend. Hear his voice. Believe in who he is, the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God, who when we put our faith in him as his sheep, we then follow him like a sheep follows their shepherd. Follow Jesus today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus, the Messiah, the savior of the world. And we thank you, God, that you call us to follow him with all that we are. And not only do you call us to it, but those who are your sheep, who hear his voice, you make able to follow. I pray, God, that you would make able for people today, people who have idolized their own way, their own thinking. They've made Jesus into what they want him to be, not who the Bible says that he is. Would they hear the call today? Believe. Thank you, God, for the credible testimony of faith that we witnessed here today. We pray, God, that you would allow us to see more as people hear the gospel and believe. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. If, if Really simple. If you've not followed Jesus, today, let today be that day. Hear the gospel, believe unto salvation, and follow him. I can promise you this. There's nothing in this world. What would it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? There's nothing in this world worth following other than Jesus. If you want to follow Jesus today at the end of the service, I'll be in the lobby. Come find me. Let's talk about how you can trust in Christ, how you can begin with step one, credible testimony of faith. Church, this also serves as a reminder for us that we're never done being transformed. We're never done following him. That he has entrusted to us the keys of his kingdom. We're gonna sing here in just a minute. He's given to us the keys of Zion City (laughs) that we together (laughs) have access to God through Jesus because of the credible testimony of faith passed from generation to generation, even down to us. So let's stand together and respond in song.